Hey everyone, welcome to the Crypto Unstacked podcast, where we cover everything from crypto trading and investing to NFTs, decentralized finance, and so much more. The Crypto Unstacked podcast is meant for informational purposes only and should not be considered financial or investment advice. Nothing expressed in this podcast should be construed as a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell financial products. This podcast is sponsored by CoinFlex, the home of crypto yield. Whether you're passively managing money or taking an actively managed approach, you can earn and trade crypto easily on CoinFlex, which sees over $2 billion in daily trading volume. CoinFlex is committed to making crypto derivatives yield accessible to everyone, whether you are investing hundreds or thousands of dollars and more. With a newly launched automated market-making product called AMM+, you can earn yield on crypto by providing liquidity into the futures markets. The AMM Plus is 10 times more capital efficient than other automated market makers and offers multiple collateral types so that you can earn more with less. Interested in learning more about CoinFlex and trying out the AMM Plus? Head over to coinflex.com slash AMM to get started and let the market work for you. Roshan Patel, thank you for coming on uh, Crypto Unstacked. Thanks for having me, Sudhir. It's great to be here. Wonderful. So you're the uh, VP of Institutional Lending at uh, Genesis and uh, Genesis Capital, and I'll come back to what all of that means. But uh, maybe as importantly, um, as a colleague of yours told me at a conference in London back in October, you're actually the uh, CTO of Genesis as well, and that being the uh, chief Twitter officer. And they said, uh, <laughs> and he actually said, I have no idea how he has time for his day job because all I see is Twitter posts. And uh, so, uh, you know, feel free to uh, refute that, confirm that, or all of the above. Um, no, no, I can't. No refute there. You know, I think it's a fairly apt description. But uh, you'd be surprised. Like, my, my Twitter is more like a sort of stream of consciousness. Like, very, like, it's just some things I think of or see or whatever and have a comment on it. It comes out pretty quickly. And also, like, memes. I've gotten really good at making <laughs> memes very quickly. Like, right. I have templates and things ready to go. So, I sometimes make memes like on my phone for like a text conversation I have within a few seconds. So it's pretty efficient, pretty efficient. Good, good. Well, you're keeping us entertained. And you know, honestly, there's some really interesting stuff that you do post on the outside of the memes around how the space is evolving. And, and uh, we can, we'll chat about that in a second. I understand you studied at Northwestern and, and then you joined Gelber, which I think from my memory is kind of a traditional TradFi trading firm. How did that come about? Yeah. So when I was at Northwestern, I studied uh, computer science and math. Like I was in like a specific math program. It was very competitive and pretty difficult. I did okay in college, but like, you know, my first two years, I wasn't like, I, I would say like top tier grades or anything like that. So it was a little bit more difficult for me to go down like traditional routes of like investment banking or consulting because they would just look at like top line GPA or things like that. So I kind of got into trading between my sophomore and junior year because it felt more democratic, more like just accessible. I worked on the floor of the Chicago Board of Options Exchange. So I kind of cut my teeth in like the S&P 500 pit there at like a market making firm. And then, yeah, Gelber, I interned at the summer after, mainly because like, you know, it was like a bigger version of what I was doing the previous summer, like nice office and good strategies, a bunch of teams, like nice camaraderie. 
and it was a very exciting summer to be a trader at like a place like Gelber. That was the summer of 2016. So you had like, you had a Brexit happen that year and I was sitting on like an algorithmic FX trading sort of desk. So it was like very uh, suitable timing there and exciting. And then you had Trump getting elected later in the year. So there's just a lot of events going on. So it was, it was a very exciting time. So after college, you know, I figured I would just uh, join it. It'd be a good first spot to start. And I enjoyed it a lot. It's just, of course, they weren't into crypto markets. And right. I thought that that was the future. And that's where the sort of puck was going. So I wanted to be involved in crypto more, which is my only main reason for leaving. Gotcha. And at that point, you know, before you left, you, were you already a crypto hodler? Or what was your interaction yeah. with crypto? Yeah, so I started hodling ETH like 2016, 17 post DAO fork because that's when I first heard about it. Bitcoin I had known about for a while and interacted with a little bit before, but nothing meaningful. So like ETH was my first real entry point into crypto. And in the 17, 18 bull run, I, I ran a variety of sort of like ARB trading strategies between like a couple exchanges on crypto to crypto crosses. It was very lucrative. So that's part of the reason why I left my old job because I was like, this is like, you know, we're like fighting for like half a bit on like crude oil futures right. with like latency considered, whereas like these two exchanges are 10% wide on a crypto to crypto cross, which doesn't require any banking or in infrastructure or things like that. Of course, the I actually, you know, I made more units of crypto doing arb trading. But when you look at it in dollar terms, it was actually down a little bit because as I scaled the strategies, the prices of assets I was needed on exchanges went down a lot. And like, you mm -hmm. know, in a bull market, it's easy to be like, hey, I'm getting more and more units and it's all going to go up. But it didn't. So then I started thinking about borrowing and lending in crypto. And that's kind of ultimately how I landed at Genesis in early 2018 is when I started. It's about you know, four years ago. So that was what you saw an ad in the newspaper or online as word of mouth? How did that come about? It was sort of like Google because I was like, I Googled, how do I borrow Litecoin? And then I saw like some Business Insider article about how Genesis Trading is starting a crypto lending desk. And in the first two weeks, it had $100 million in active loans outstanding. And I looked up what Genesis Capital was, figured out what DCG was. I was like, okay, this is interesting. This company's been around for a while. Yeah. And then I saw a job posting on LinkedIn for an analyst position. And my current colleague now, Matt, had posted it and I kind of just sent him like a quick message, like sort of lucky. There was like thousands and thousands of people applying because there was like that first mass exodus of employees from Wall Street to crypto. So I yeah. was like, oh, there's no chance I get this. And then ultimately we met for coffee and I did get it. So it was good. So, I mean, Genesis is obviously a, um, a term associated with crypto, the Genesis block. And we obviously see Genesis everywhere. There's like two Genesis in Hong Kong. There's one, you know, you guys in New York. And obviously you guys are the granddaddy of all Genesis. You know, how does Genesis at the time, you know, before going into what the, you guys do across your different kind of product offerings, how do you guys sort of go after the talent market like yourselves? How do they compete for the Goldman Sachs bankers even now? for example, or the, the Morgan Stanley traders from a college perspective, for those who are listening, I mean, you know, how do they view this or how do you yeah. guys view this? So I think it's evolved over time. Like in 2018, there was that first exodus of people from Wall Street trying to get into crypto after that sort of run up. So like, you know, there was a lot of people for jobs, but we kept the team pretty small and lean. So it was ultimately like I joined and we had our risk officer come from JP Morgan he just wanted something new to do. And then in like 2019, 2020, really 2019, it was like the people you found were coming from crypto recruiting agencies or word of mouth from friends and whatnot, because it was like the market was sort of quiet and less volatile and, you know, it was a little bit more difficult to find people. But now you don't have to do that much 
work to compete with the banks. It's like strictly better in, in many aspects. And people are realizing that. So like these resumes are naturally landing on our front door. We don't really have to work so hard to convince people why their job at a bulge racket bank might be worse than what you could do here. They already believe it and they're coming in with the assumption that they want to join. So it's gotten a lot easier as we've evolved, as the market's right. evolved. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. And then Genesis as an institution. Now, you know, what are the different segments? I guess there's borrowed lend, as you said. Is Can you run us through what else you guys do for those who are not familiar? Yeah. So we started with spot trading back in, you know, that was the original business, like just making markets OTC, like standard classic. Then the next thing we did was borrowing and lending. That was 2018. We started that. And then in 2020, we started doing derivatives. So like OTC derivatives for, you know, like forwards and options, things like that settled bilaterally directly with Genesis or on screens via CME or Deribit. And then after that, sort of the next thing was custody that we started. So like we bought a custodian out of the UK, licensed in the UK, so we can like kind of hold assets outside of our normal lending and trading wallets and infrastructure a little bit more cold. And then more recently, we started making some investments out of our trading desk, like sort of principal investments. Those have been small historically, and I think they'll ramp up in the future. I focus on that quite a bit now these days too. So, you know, those are kind of like the general business lines. Yeah, We put out like research and things like that, but we're not like a subscription model or anything. It's just free. It's on our site. So it's more like just marketing that Cool. Yeah, I want to come back to that investment thesis, which is a common theme running around kind of high frequency firms that I've been chatting to recently as well. But if I was to talk around really lending and which is where you guys seem to make a huge name for yourselves, I understand that your lending book grew from sort of, say, 100 million in 2018 to 15 billion in 2022. Correct. And, you know, what's kind of interesting with CoinFlex's repo product that we, you know, created like the first order book for repo for setting dollar rates, essentially for borrow lend of coins or, or supplying dollars. And obviously you guys are not a marketplace. We're a marketplace. But obviously the OTC side, which is what you guys and Celsius and, and the others do, is, it's huge. You guys being the number one, probably in the, one of the, the number one, probably in that space. How do you see that kind of growing forward? Do you see it like in TradFi getting, you know, more and more directed to order books, even if you guys block both sides? But do you see more kind of central order book type activity as borrowing goes over the next few years? Or do you see it still being sort of very fragmented in bilateral chat rooms that you guys have with large institutions? Or what are your thoughts on that? No, I think it, I definitely see more of a central order book and on-screen sort of market. Like the analogy I use is like, Imagine you ran a trading desk without an actual screen to like hedge risk and everything was done over chat or OTC. Like over time, it becomes unscalable and more difficult to operate. Granted, lending interest rates move a lot less than where the spot price of Bitcoin is. But over time, you'll see more settlements occur on screen, whether that's on centralized platforms like Genesis, CoinFlex, or even like more decentralized where there's pools. But everyone in the pool is KYC'd and is registered and all the addresses are whitelisted. And we're just using Ethereum as like a settlement layer for lending transactions, but it provides transparency into where the sort of bids and offers are in the market. And I think, you know, we'll get there. We're getting there over time. You look at the proliferation of borrow line protocols on DeFi across chains too. And then also like to your point about traditional finance coming in, like, are they going to want to prefer to do screens versus OTC? I think you know, it takes a lot for any traditional financial firm to even consider lending cash against Bitcoin as collateral. Now, a lot of them have gotten comfortable with it and are doing it in some size as well. 
those transactions are generally faced on like more of a repo agreement type basis, you know, sort of standard OTC, like is the type agreement. Mm. So I think it'll take them even a little bit longer than like the Genesis and the CoinFlex of the world to become screen native, but they'll eventually get there too. I think they'll just come in like a later phase because it takes a lot for them to like sign transactions, and see a pool or even log in and do everything on screen. Yeah, no, it's an interesting point. And obviously the final part of that step in that process is, you know, you just mentioned that how you guys is custody essentially. And you guys, you know, you mentioned that you bought a regulated UK custodian, obviously um, Galaxy bought BigGo this year, late last year. And as an exchange, as CoinFlex, you know, we've got this issue where we are the exchange, the clearer and the custodian, and and we don't want to be a clearer or a custodian. We just want to be the fee income marketplace as an exchange, but we don't have a choice. Do you feel that we need the sort of state streets or the uh, kind of the independent or the BNY melons, the independent custodians really to come into this space to separate the trading side of it, whether yourselves or is ourselves and the customer side and the sit between the two. Or do you think institutions will still keep increasing exposure to it, despite the fact that it's kind of a one shop counterparty risk when they face you guys or face ourselves? I think, you know, more customization is always better in terms of getting more and more people involved in things. So like, yeah, maybe... You know, right now, if you borrow cash from Genesis and post Bitcoin as collateral, we hold that Bitcoin on our balance sheet. Like in the future, could you see like that Bitcoin being held at like a BNY Mellon or something of the sort? And we have it on tap if we need to liquidate it, but it's not actually held in it. And it makes the borrower a lot more comfortable about the Bitcoin and things like that. You know, I think that optionality will be there eventually. And in some ways, it, it makes the process a little less efficient and a little more slow. But in other ways, you know, it gets a certain type of people more comfortable. When you're talking about the DeFi angle, though, like let's say, you know, we put like 100 million USDC into a pool and yeah. say, hey, for every $2 of Bitcoin that's deposited to the pool, you can withdraw $1 of USDC and that Bitcoin sits in the pool smart contract address. So long as that depends on where that contract itself is custodied or even if it has an admin function to withdraw all or liquidate all or anything like that. I think for there, it's easier for people to get more comfortable with the fact that that smart contract is Genesis, a smart contract rather than an escrow agent or a third party, because it's completely transparent as to what, where it is, you can see it on chain. So yeah, generally I do think that that model will exist. It'll come in different flavors depending on where it's approached from. Yeah. Like the RV arc, I guess. And so, Correct. You know, yeah, similar yeah, model example. here, right? Yeah. Yeah. Going back to something you said uh, just slightly earlier as well, which has kind of been interesting to me is around the principal investing. And, you know, obviously you mentioned a couple of arms, you know, originating loans, trading spots, derivatives and principal investing. And it's a couple of themes that have been running through the pods I've been doing with Volkswagen and, and some of the others where a lot of market making firms are kind of investing as seed investors into platforms where they could sort of contribute something beyond the capital, like liquidity on a perp thing. Is this the kind of principal investing that you're talking about, like a VC style investment? Yeah, exactly. Like, we're, you know, we're not going to just invest in something because it's a good deal and we have no strategic integration to it. Like everything that we want to do on the anytime we invest, it's because there's some strategic alignment, whether we can provide liquidity to the platform via lending or borrow from it or trade derivatives with it, or even just spot integration via API or anything like that. It's a pretty broad scope because of the nature of all the services that we do. Pretty much every company could benefit from some sort of tangent of it. But yeah, it, it generally just all strategically aligned with our core businesses so we can integrate them and you know earn revenue from trading as well as like appreciation on token or equity. Yeah, it's, it's actually a fascinating model because obviously when I was at your stage, 
in the trading career was, you know, this would never even be, you know, we would have laughed at anyone who asked us this, right? And but I can, I'm starting to see the value of of this kind of blended approach because, you know, it's uh, I, I did a podcast with Max Boone mm. a couple of weeks ago and. He told me how Arthur from BitMEX, Arthur Hayes, had come to him and said, "Listen, I'll give you five percent of BitMEX if you're the principal liquidity provider." And and Max laughed and said, "No thanks," and because he didn't want to commit to a minimum time in market spread size type criteria, but he traded on BitMEX nevertheless, probably exactly as he would have done with the equity deal. And of course, he's yeah, left he's left tough. hundreds of millions of dollars behind by not taking Arthur yeah. up on that deal, right? So yeah, that's it's, brutal. It brutal. And he was obviously he'd sold his business to SBI now and he's sort of pretty chilled and laughing about it. But, you know, that was a very clear example of why as a liquidity provider or a user of the product, like you say, that maybe the borrower lend, the repo, whatever it might be, or the options platform, where it makes sense to, you know, if you're going to grow the enterprise value of that platform, you might as well participate in the upside by being a in a token or equity holder. So it's, yeah, exactly. it is becoming very clear to me. Another thing, you know, I know you didn't mention it. I'm not sure if you're involved in it directly or not, because I mean, you guys are big options traders as well, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So I'm very close to the options trading guys. I mean, because options trading guys that also does like locked forwards and things like that. So all those things are very closely tied to interest rates. I mean, even when you price an option on any asset, depending on the side of it, you have to consider what the borrow rate of the underlying is. So we're very intertwined with the options desk. I talked to Josh, who runs that business very regularly, at, yeah. at least, you know multiple times a day. And I, I understand how they kind of work and pricing and the model, less so quoting it OTC and chat, because we have traders that do that. But yeah, it's we're very close with them. It's a very good business. No, absolutely. I've been sort of starting to follow, you know, very late in the game or early in the game, really, it's a whole of crypto is, but around DeFi option vaults and how, mm. you know, I put a piece out today on LinkedIn, just saying, just kind of chatting through the thesis that, is the kind of proliferation of DeFi option vaults and AMMs across, you know, spot and futures on CoinFlex, basically supplying synthetic vol into the market. DeFi options, real vol, AMMs are synthetic vol sellers in huge size and futures by kind of putting a, a cap and floor into futures markets. Is it one of the main reasons why option volatility has essentially been on its lows for some extended period? And obviously I was comparing it to my trading days at, on, at Merrill Lynch, for example, where there was a lot of structured products supplying vol. And so vol generally trended lower. And whenever there was a spike in vol in the market due to a, you know, a 5%, 10% move down, the vol spike would quickly get sold down by the banks because they knew there was a, a never-ending supply of new structured put selling or call selling coming back in as the market moved. You know, do you think this sort of DOVs and supply of vol is one of the reasons why we're entering a new paradigm in in option vol, whereas when 60 to 70 vol in BTC is actually the norm or is now the high side? and Or do you think we're just in a kind of unusual market where we're kind of stuck in the mud and we're just waiting for the next leg, higher or lower? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, a couple things there. I think the vaults definitely contribute to depressed volume. It's just supply and demand there. And, you know, to think that people, there's so much out there that's held in spot assets that realize like 100 vol, 200 vol over, over the years, like some, especially things that aren't Bitcoin and ETH that still have options vaults on them. They're very volatile. And when you think about staking at six to 10% or selling a fully funded covered call, which gets you maybe like 10 or 5x more yield than that, it's almost surprising that more people aren't trading options around their spot crypto holdings. But I think it's a question of access and understanding. The vaults sort of simplify the process. There's no margin. There's no liquidation. It's all fully funded. Yeah. And it makes it a lot easier to engage in it. So I do think it's part of it. And it should be in the sense that like while these 
assets are so volatile, it makes sense to, to sell optionality on it or vice versa, even buy optionality on it. The other thing is as assets mature, I think I actually wrote my thesis about this in college, my senior year about the oil futures market and just the general sort of over time trend evolve for assets as they mature. You should see a dampening of volatility as more people are selling it, as the product becomes more liquid, as there's more derivatives on it. Over time, the vol spikes will be less in magnitude, less frequent, yeah. and get sold down faster because it's kind of like that asymptotic trend that that occurs. So, why would crypto be any different? I, I don't think so. So, like the similar thing you saw with oil, you could see with crypto. I think. Yeah. No, it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out. It's it's really cool how you know it really has democratized access to markets, which has been CoinFlex's kind of key theme around our FlexUSD there, which is, you know, I know you guys are, are traded our repo at the start directly, which is great. We then tokenized it to make it easily accessible to anyone. And, they, you know, yeah. whether it be family offices, retail, or, you know, or even institutions, because managing a repo position 24-7 is not a one-man job, especially with, you know, when funding changes or curves are pretty flat. So DOVs, FlexUSD, you know, AMM Plus and stuff, all incredible innovation. And, and there's more coming that we don't even know about yet, which is just yeah, great. Exactly, you know? exactly. And I think one of the things about that makes the, the SSOVs and the DOVs interesting on crypto platforms is like sort of the compostability and the easiness to switch around what you're doing. Like if you try to sell calls in like your brokerage account on one where you hold your stocks, like you're kind of stuck to that infrastructure, whatever they've built. If you want to use something else, you have to either transfer your stocks or do a weird buy sell. It's like all a mess and like, everything is uh, sort of very isolated. Whereas in like these vaults, like, you know, you choose the one that makes the most sense to you, which one you like the feel, you might stick with it, but you can also just unstake it before the end of the epic and, and move to the next one and try them all out. And it's super easy to shift and, and be compostable and, and understand things and, you know, trade different assets that they have vaults on. So I think it's like an order of magnitude better than the current way that you sell covered calls on like your equity positions or things like that. It's much more simpler in, in many ways. Yeah. And then the fact that you can determine the size, right? And the fact that you can be small to medium yeah, to large do, and yeah, exactly. test it out. Right. I've got a question for you. Puzzle, a tease, a quiz or whatever you call it. Mm -hmm. Sure. Americans use different lingo to us Brits. But how many, yeah. if you look at Goldman Sachs, what is your estimate on the number of people they have employed in digital assets globally right now? Ooh, uh, that's a good question. I mean, I know the team there and like, I know a few of them. It's at least one. I can say that. I mean, maybe like, how big is that team? Probably like 20, 30? Amazing, right? My guess was around 20. It's 100. Ah, uh, yes. I remember they made an announcement. I should have guessed higher. I thought, I, you know what? I knew you were baiting for a shockingly higher answer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I had a phone call with them actually. And, and I was like, what? Wait, really? And they were like, yeah. Now, they trade... I guess they trade NDFs, you know, and they're looking at, you know, doing a lot of stuff around research, some investment banking, trading size NDFs. How do you see these guys really? I mean, are they really here? I mean, hundreds are a lot of people, which sounds to me like they're committed. What is the feeling, especially in the US, which is obviously you guys, I think, are far more progressed from, the, from a bank's interaction perspective. What's your feel as to are, are these banking side of people coming into it? Are Morgan Stanley in? Are these guys, you know, what are you guys, are they... You know, are they, is this real or is it just kind of temporary fleeting, you know, side bet? No, no, I think it's real. I think that, you know, the banks are going to get more involved. They're going to figure out custody. They're going to get over the hurdles eventually over time. Right now, they just have a lot of hurdles. Like the problem with crypto is the bearer custody, right? It's like the fact that even if you use a custodian or an escrow agent or whatever, there's someone that's like holding this with full control 
even with the MPC, it could be a group of keys or things like that. I think that notion, and if it messes up, it's gone forever. Whereas like, you know, with stock certificate, you just kind of tear up the one that was lost and print a new one. Those operational difficulties are going to, I think, are what constricts the banks. Like if they could operate in their traditional framework, this would have all been built a while ago. But, you know, over time, you have to assume that they figure it out. But um, it'll be interesting to see how flows integrate to the banks versus, you know, sort of crypto native companies that have existed like Genesis and CoinFlex for years that have been doing the same thing. And also on-chain protocols where, you know, it's like much even more seamless than native companies. Like people tend to believe that, hey, when the banks come in, you guys better watch out because like, you know, the banks have been around, they have like 200 year old records, things like that. Well, I think it's a little bit of the opposite where the banks are going to have to figure out how to enter and like come in with make a splash and capture years and years of market share established and proclivities of trading. You know, people like doing things that they're used to. And if their process is any sliver less efficient or less like comfortable as the current system of centralized or the current system of decentralized, it's going to be tough to move assets over. And it's a pretty tough competitive market there. So like, you know, the whole slow settlements, the whole wires, the whole business hours, it's all Mm. 24-7, 365, anything you want right away. That's what you're competing with. It's going to take a while to get there. Yeah, I'm super excited that they're in because it does add credibility to the space that they've made such a big investment. And I'm sure the other banks are doing the same, you know, probably not to 100 people yet, or maybe more, who knows. But yeah, I'm looking forward to having them involved on platforms like both ourselves. So I'm not sure whether Crypto Unstacked, because it's really Leslie's podcast, whether it goes on video or not. But just in case it doesn't, this is my my final question to you. It's uh, completely unrelated, but Right behind you, I can see a, a great whiskey collection, a, a Lagavulin 16-year and a, a Japanese whiskey. Which one do you prefer? That's actually so funny. If you look at the Japanese whiskey box, it's unopened. So like I, <laughs> I've amassed this collection from years of gifts and also hosting parties in my apartment. Like I have a lot of people over <laughs> and I always overbuy the alcohol and then it just kind of accrues over time. And like I have enough for probably like four or five years of hosting parties here and it's just a mass and then you get gifts. But if I had to choose one, it is the, the Japanese. The, the whiskey, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Roche Patel, thank you so much for your time. It's been a fun chatting to you. And thank you for coming on Crypto Unstacked. Thank you, Sudhu. Have a good one. Have a good one. Yeah.